choices shape the market, our society, and our quality of life. That's why EuroConsumers helps millions of people in their daily choices, providing simple solutions to complex problems. EuroConsumers is a cluster of organizations, a network of people, a group established to protect consumer rights and well-being that brings consumers and companies together in transparent relationships of trust that respect their independence. Our deep understanding of products and consumption gives consumers a credible expert voice worldwide. We bridge the gap between buyers and manufacturers, between supply and demand. And in this digital age, we create opportunities for all parties to come together in constructive dialogue, partnering to build a future of better products and services. EuroConsumers has the power of a global group that believes humanity can develop, grow and change for the better and that we can promote this by uniting millions of consumers in strength and speaking responsibly for them while simultaneously engaging in relationships of trust with responsible, sustainable companies. Good afternoon and welcome to Star Talking Webinar brought to you by Euroconsumers. I am Liz Call and whether you're joining us live or watching the recording, we extend a warm welcome to each and every one of you. After last episode on March, today we will talk again about ChatGPT. We appreciate your presence and enthusiasm for this topic. Alongside me, we have a fantastic lineup of experts, their insights and perspectives promise to make this session an enlightening experience for all. So, without further ado, let's delve into today's episode. Thank you for joining us, and let's begin our enlightening conversation. Well, my AI self did a good enough job, I think, of introducing this webinar, but I'm going to take over now and say hello to everybody watching Start Talking Live and everybody who's viewing or listening to the recording. Uh, Euroconsumers will be live tweeting, so you can follow along the conversation at hashtag Start Talking, and you can follow at Euroconsumers on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm going to introduce you now to the five real human participants that we're lucky enough to have with us this afternoon. First of all, we have Elias Papadopoulos, who's policy director at Dot Europe. That's an umbrella group which represents some of the biggest tech companies in Europe, including Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. So welcome, Elias. Next up, we have Kali Schroeder, who's senior counsel and global privacy counsel at the Electronic Privacy Information Center, better known as EPIC. EPIC was established in the mid nineties to protect privacy, free speech, and democratic values online. And I think those that work is still needed, perhaps even more today as the digital world has taken shape. Next, we've got Sinjin Deakins, who's a founder and CEO of Citizen Me. Citizen Me is a startup with the goal of empowering everyone to get better outcomes from their data and hopefully better outcomes from AI. Next, we have Lodovico Benevenuti, who's managing director of IFPI's European office. IFPI represent recording industry worldwide with over 8,000 members, mostly made up of record labels and producers. So welcome to. And our final guest today is Christian Dacuna, who works on data policy, privacy and cybersecurity at the European Commission. He's previously with the European Data Protection Supervisor, where he advised on a range of digital policy issues, including privacy and, and other developments across the EU. Okay, so let's start talking and please to everybody watching, please add your comments and questions and we'll try to get as to as many of them as we can. So ChatGPT and Google's Bard, which was released today in Europe, Stable Diffusion, et cetera, et cetera. They're all generative AI systems which are open for use by consumers in most parts of the world. But how much do we really know about how they work and the data that they're trained on? 
I want to go back to basics in this first bit to ask where does all this data that goes into these large models come from? I think it's scraped from the web or fed in from databases. So Callie, can I ask you where this data comes from and what problems there are with the approach of sweeping up so much of it into one model? Sure. So uh, there are a few places that the data sets can come from. Um, people can build these systems to be trained on very specific curated data sets that they put together. Uh, that would be the most responsible approach. But what we're seeing much more frequently is that these data sets are using, are um, made up of just mass scraping of everything they can find online. Uh, and it can also be continuous scraping. So it'll create a data set and then keep on scraping and feeding more and more information into the data set that trains these systems. Uh, the problem with the continuous scraping is that there's really no limitations set for what information is taken in and um, generative AI systems aren't trained to be quality uh, filters. They, they don't check for whether the data that they're taking in is good or bad. They just absorb it and learn from it. So the lack of transparency on what the data sets are and where the information comes from is a huge problem because it not only means that they could be taking in inaccurate data, it also means that people uh, likely will have no awareness that their personal data is being included in these data sets. They may have supplied it for a specific purpose. You may have put up a blog post or made an account on a system or um, submitted information in what you thought was a closed setting that then was open for scraping. So uh, it makes it extremely difficult for people to exercise any data rights when they have no idea their information is included in these data sets in the first place. Mm, thanks very much. I'll come bring you in now, Sinjin, because you work on trying to give data rights back to consumers so they can use them. So, I mean, do we think anyone's consented to their data being used like that, like this? That's a, it's a really good question. If you're unaware of how your data is being used, then by definition, you can't really consent. Um, so there's a, there's a broad problem with kind of the general scraping. I mean, the, the models are, are incredibly powerful. They again have immense impact on our lives. Um, for the current generation of models, they basically just use pretty much anything that can get their hands on um, across the internet, including huge sweeps of, um, of social media data, kind of Reddit, um, things off Wikipedia, etc. Um, and there aren't really any kind of controls or um, any understanding of um, or classification of that data that's then fed into the model. So it's enabled us as this first generation to kind of create very powerful models, but in terms of kind of things like data rights, the organizations creating the models have no idea kind of um, what data is then used in the output. Um, and kind of, and there are no real controls over the, the inputs and consent. Okay. Um, Christian, I'll come to you now, as you've worked in this area for a long time. Um, what problems do you see with this approach of collecting as much data as you can and then seeing what comes out of it? Well, it, it's it's um, it's not a new problem, um, but I think the the scale at which it's it's um, taking place is is new. Uh, I mean, there, there are various angles to look at it. One of them is is from a sort of pure data protection point of view, and with the the framework that we have in place in the EU with the GDPR, you obviously need to have a legal basis for, for collecting any, any personal information. And there are question marks around whether, um, whether you can have uh, a legitimate uh, legal basis for scraping um, uh, all, of the, all of the data that's available on the internet. So that's, that's one thing. Um, then, um, then you can look at it from the perspective of um, uh the what you consider to be a sample so you know we, we've all seen um we've all seen illustrations of of the application of chat gpt and similar models in the last in the last uh, six or seven months and uh, you know i think what it shows is that crawling the web does not give you a representative sample of 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 humanity um mm. and furthermore it raises questions about who is making decisions about what is representative. Um, and we, we certainly have empirical evidence to indicate that simply crawling the web for data is going to generate um, and, and exacerbate um, 
you know, societal biases and negative stereotypes. And you see that particularly in the case of people of colour and, and women. Mm. So these are the questions to be answered in before we even get into, um, you know, what these things are being used for and the decisions that are being based on this technology. Mm. Yeah, I see what <clears> you're <throat> saying. So it because it, 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 it sounds obvious, but these models will be trained on the biggest data sets that are out there and then they will inevitably be from the countries and the areas of the world that have been connected to the internet for the longest or who are using it the most, you've inevitably got a bias already there. And obviously in many parts of the world, there's there's less access for women or people in other disadvantaged categories. So already we're starting off with not um, not the full set. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. I want to bring in now um, something that we found from a new survey that Euroconsumers has done. This is one of the first surveys that's been done um, of consumers about their use of chat GPT and it was 4,000 consumers in Italy, Spain, Portugal and Belgium and amongst many other things they highlighted concerns about privacy in chat GPT. So we see 34% of the consumers express concern that AI um, is going to lead to more abuse of their private and personal data. So I wanted to come to you Elias, um, are companies alive to these concerns and what are they doing about it? Um... Yes, uh, I think that's uh, that's a very good question. Uh, first of all, it's very interesting to note uh, there's a significant percentage of people concerned with that. It does show that at least the, the narrative on data protection has really kind of filtered through um, to the mainstream over the past few years. Um, then companies, of course, are alive to these concerns. Uh, they do follow uh, the framework set in place by the GDPR for, uh, I believe it's just over five years now. and in addition to following that, uh, we have seen, for example, uh, Italy decided to slow down or to to pause the rollout of ChatGPT until certain concerns were met, and then eventually, I believe, authorized uh, the entry into the market. So, I think we can see, we see that there are tools there and and ways to express uh, certain concerns, and then uh, companies can actually take corrective measures if there is an understanding that there are certain uh, issues. Make you know ensure compliance with the existing. Um, rules and then uh, roll something out to the market okay okay thank you and um, i'm going to turn to lodovico now um and we're really pleased that you're here because you're from the music industry and this is a very particular type of material data that's been subjected already to the processes of generative ai and i think most people remember the track that was released um this spring which was cloned the voices of drake and uh, the weekend, and that made everyone kind of sit up and listen and go, wow, this is really something new and different. So are individual artists and creators worried about the impact of, a of AI, or particularly generative and creative AI? Oh, you're on mute, Ludovico. Apologies. Uh, so thank you very much for the question. Uh, 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 by the way, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's very important that we start uh, by uh, by just giving you a little bit the the, the 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 idea of where we are as an industry. We see AI as an immense opportunity. So AI can be a tool in order to provide support to the artist, to the creative dimension, and to the human creativity. Of, of our artists. Nevertheless, I find very interesting to listen to what you have said so far, because we see many of the things that uh, were uh, traditionally confined to the data angle, which are now very relevant also for, for, for our sector, for the music sector. So whether this is traditional copyright, so the, our investment, but also uh, personality rights, uh, moral rights, um publicity rights whatever uh, whatever jurisdiction you are and 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 yes there is concern that uh, that this this activity can be detrimental for similar reasons to the one which are related to data protection in the sense that you don't know and uh, you don't have control and if you don't know i don't have control it's very difficult to provide a uh, 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 cautious consent to the mm -hmm. use of your personality, and uh, and uh, as record companies, we have uh, the first role we have is also to protect our artists and their image and their personality. So that's that's certainly an element of concern. 
Okay. And what, I mean, obviously the music industry, I've been thinking, it's had a lot of disruption, hasn't it, from the digital world? I mean, every industry has, but it's changed so much from when I was a teenager and buying what felt like really expensive CDs. It's so different now. So how do you see this latest wave of disruption? Well, I think I think that what, what we see is, uh, I, I'm very happy to work for this industry because, because, again, it's an industry, as you say, that has been, it's got, got used to to go through so many disruptions that every time we see something new we have learned to look at this first from the positive side so mm -hmm. we see a lot of positive in the ai because we must see in any disruption something positive in order to to take advantage out of it as we have done with all previous disruptions so we are we, we are optimistic but again it's just a matter of how you create the tools in order to future proof partnerships so and in order to create good partnerships for our artists it is absolutely crucial that we have visibility on which data and which uh, copyright is 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 used by by these systems this is the starting point. And then you can create on this basis, so on the basis of a symmetry of information, mm. good, 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 good use of it. Mm, okay. So I can see when you have the visibility and, and are able to trace where something's come from, it's probably easier to then engage more positively with it. But um, I mean, I'm thinking that's not always going to be, that's not going to be the case in other industries and particularly maybe not for consumers with their personal data. Sinjin, I'm just going to ask you now, because you do a lot of work on helping people assert their data rights. Do you, is it possible for them to find things, to, to be able to do that if your data's in a training set? Um, it's not at the moment. I mean, for OpenAI, I have no idea. They'll give, on, say, ChatGPT, GPT-4, you can basically have an output, but the creators of that model have no real way of telling right now um, where the outputs have come from. Um, so not only for individuals in terms of our own data rights, and effectively, in one sense, we're all as individuals, we're all creators because mm. we're providing our personal data into these models um, through the data that's been scraped without us being aware of it. Um, and also, obviously, for, for creators like people in the music industry, um, there is a very, very hard with the current generation of models to basically track that. Now, there are lots of talks about kind of um, developing new generations where you can actually kind of trace and, and you have some transparency about sources and I think that will start coming through mm. with, with the current versions um, a little like the analogy I've written a blog post recently it's it's very early days it's similar to the early days of the industrial revolution um, with kind of early steam engines and things basically we we're at a stage where it's very very crude systems even though they, they're groundbreaking for us and we, we can imagine the future potential of them uh, where we are at the moment, the, the systems are still very crude. So th there are potential harms there, which we just don't know because you you can't see the, where the um, the personal data is used in the source. Um, and that's going to have profound impacts for, for us as individuals, potentially, but also for, for the creative economies like music that we, we just talked about. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. If we maybe we all need to think of ourselves as as creators in the same way that Drake, or maybe not if you don't like Drake, but <laughs> the weekend are, that, and that actually what we're giving is is of great value. Um, just really quickly on that, I mean the um, the interesting thing is, I mean if we look at the kind of the end game for for where AI is going to go, then if we see them as engines, we'll, we'll end up with lots of organisations basically building out foundational models potentially as part of their own um, service to customers. Uh, so those foundational models are going to be trained on customer data, which is personal data. Mm. Uh, and eventually we'll probably all end up with our own personal AIs, which will need to be provided by someone. And all of those things will basically need additional regulations and mm. um, will need consumer bodies to effectively represent people to, to make sure that, they're, that the harms are mitigated and the upside is. And the okay. We'll come back to personal AIs in a bit. Callie, did you want to come in here? Yeah, one of the, the things that I was thinking of, especially when it comes to um, 
the differences between creative works and individual uh, information in generative AI is that the the lack of transparency and and frankly uh, the tendency of the developers of these systems to make them sound as complicated as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, that's intentional. They want to make it sound like you don't understand what's going on and you can't really approach it. And that's kind of a way to keep people from being empowered uh, to look at the data sets, look at the training sets, figure out if their data is being involved in it. And there are real impacts to that. We've been talking a little bit about hypothetical harms in the future for what could happen with generative AI systems, but there are existing harms that are already happening with generative AI that are damaging individuals. So uh, the data sets that are used for training, frequently connections are made within the systems that aren't good or correct connections. Um, so people's names may be linked to things that are really harmful. There was an example of a, um, a college professor who was a, a real life college professor whose name was included on a generated list of um, people that had been accused of sexual harassment when that was not true, but a connection was made somewhere in the background of the training set and that led to a real reputational harm. There's also mm -hmm. harms of you know, harassment or uh, generated evidence that could be used for blackmail. Um, there's generated images that can incorporate parts of individuals that are in it for deep fakes that are used for um, other forms of blackmail or reputational harm. Mm -hmm. um, and the other problem with these training sets is that because they're constantly scraping, when an incorrect output is put out, even through a generative AI model, that incorrect information then can get scraped back up and put back into the system. It becomes a cyclical system where the generative AI is kind of feeding its own wrong information in training. Right. So that, yeah. And then it could maybe eat itself, if you like, so just keep yeah. creating more and more crazy data. Okay. And again, it's like, we don't want that to happen because we want this to be useful. We want it to be a useful mm -hmm. tool. So, I mean, maybe we can see this stage where of, of these very rudimentary tools, well, this sort of first wave of tools is a way to very, very quickly learn what, what to do well and what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to stick on the positive because we, Lodovico mentioned then that he sees a bit of a win-win for the music industry. And there are positive applications that can come out of generative AI, certainly. Um, there's also lots of problems. But it's also important to think about and know about the way that consumers are using it. Um, and Euroconsumers New Survey has found of the people surveyed, 51%, so just over half of people had used it, and 12% are using it regularly now. And if you then look at the 18 to 34-year-old age gap, age group, 75% of people have used it and 24% are, are using it regularly. Um, so there's really, so with, with the younger generation, there's a real you know, use with it and they're finding it helpful. So we're going to find out from AI bot Liz about what they're using it for. Why do consumers use it? The main reason for respondents to use ChatGPT or ChatGPT-based systems is to search for information, 68%. Next in line is the usage of ChatGPT to generate text, 62%, followed by its ability to summarize long texts, 37%, to get inspiration, 31%, or generate images, 25%. So there you go. Um, Elias, what's your response to this? It's one of the first consumer-centered surveys on ChatGPT. Are you surprised by this? Are you pleased? Yes, I have to say it's uh, very interesting uh, Very interesting figures. Um, specifically for me to see that searching for information is the most popular uh, mm -hmm. use of ChatGPT because ChatGPT is in essence a language model. So this is not, um, it, it's not a repository of information. It, it does, it's not a database that pulls out facts. It's essentially mimicking uh, human uh, speech in that case in writing. So um, I think it's more used to generate a kind of a type of human human-like um, speech pattern. It, it's a predictive model. It's not really, it doesn't have, you, you don't ask, uh, for example, let's say you can ask for uh, information about a picture of a cat. It doesn't have access to, to a database um, of images of cats and then just pulls one out. It just makes inferences in, in what assumes would be uh, correct and puts it out there. So I think the use 
as an information tool. Uh, I mean, showing that this is the most uh, popular use at the moment uh, tells me that we, there's probably more work needed on what exactly ChatGPT is and how best to use it um, uh, in, in, a more, in a more efficient um, and, and correct way. I mean, it's again, it's not an information database. It's not a deterministic information retrieval system. It, it can even create different outputs uh, mm. following the same prompt with different mm. users. So it's not uh, like a, you're, you're going on, a, you know, on an information page to, to get facts about something. Mm. I suppose the challenge is that it, it, it looks like one and it sounds like an, like an information tool. So I think consumers can be forgiven for, use, for using it as well. And it's kind of presenting itself as that. Um, so I think it's a very difficult message to get across to a regular user that, you know, to going into like, it's not deterministic, it's not this, it's not that. So I think that's a real problem um, of, of how you build that literacy with consumers um, to be able to understand how they function. Callie, what was your response to this? Were you surprised? Were you worried by those results? Um, I'm fairly horrified that it's being used. <laughs> horrified, okay. Um, I think that's really terrifying. That's just fundamentally not what it is. That's not what it was built for. And I, I do understand um, why consumers are doing that because we've, you know, I mean, I've seen in speaking opportunities that there's a lot of circumstances where if you... Uh, don't know something for sure, but you say it really confidently, people tend to believe you. And if ChatGPT doesn't know something for sure, but presents it in a very nice formalized package that people seem to trust, they'll trust it. Um, I, I While that completely shakes me to my core, I, I do want to point out that there are some decent things you can do with ChatGPT but what, or generative AI systems. The problem is you just have to understand what they were built for and from that, you're able to more accurately and usefully use the system. So they're great at putting together a format for certain types of documents. I've seen people use them for um, college applications. You know, they, they're really good at filling in the form of how you would uh, do a college application letter. They're good at figuring out how you would plot or structure like a novel. Uh, they could be good at putting together um, the format for how you would send in a court document. So the, this can be really useful for people that don't have resources or don't know people that specialize in those areas um, as kind of a level playing field. But even in those cases, you need to have enough understanding of the system that, you know, you can't ask it to generate a prompt and then just wholesale go with whatever mm. they generate. You have to do review of what they've done. You have to do edits in there. You have to fill in applicable information to make sure that the the core points in there are accurate. So, you know, we've run into that as a problem already with attorneys mm -hmm. who are using it as a search engine for cases or to generate briefs for cases and are not then doing the review that are that's necessary to make sure that the facts that are included in there are really accurate. Mm -hmm. So I think it can be a really useful tool. People just have to understand it's one part of a process. It is not yep. something that generates the entire thing by itself, mm. it's not accurately. It's making me think it's like a complicated instrument. You have to learn how to play and, yes. and how to tune and all of those things. Um, Christian, what did you make of those results? Um, there's a lot of people using it, a lot of young people using it. What do you think? Yeah, very interesting results. Um, it doesn't surprise me. I, I, th I think one of the um, one of the opportunities is is that um, if you know we can rely on a on a tool which isn't um, uh, sort of subservient to you know the kind of um, personalized advertising um, logic, which will you know which is basically where the algorithms are basically designed to curate your search results in order to maximize attention and advertising revenue with all mm -hmm. the uh, issues of amplifying prejudice mm -hmm. and outrage that that comes with that then you know that's potentially a, a hopeful avenue if it goes down that that road um i agree with Kali that that you know the there are there are some very it, it can be quite empowering. It certainly helps um, with writer's block and um, getting you started if you if you need to do a piece of writing. But um, on the on the other hand, and like it, it's it's um, 
you know it, it's it's uh it's it's quite primitive um when you like the i don't know if if it's if it's uh moved on since then but i know a couple of months ago um someone if you're looking for information if you're using it as a search engine as it stands it's not it's not um particularly um uh it's not particularly helpful so like there, there was an example a couple of months ago where someone entered in a question you know tell me the names of 10 great philosophers and it came up with 10 philosophers and they're all like um western male philosophers and then the follow-up question was were well, they're all men and so they came up with men and women from the west and then you know, it took a, a number of iterations before you actually got something which was a bit more representative. So, mm. again, it goes back to the, you know, the data that's being, that that's feeding the model, and it, it's not, um, it's not necessarily going to help us uh, uh, move forward um, the way the way it's designed at the moment. Yeah, no, it's interesting because so the title of the webinar is data in, data out, but actually you can't. It, the, the two are very they're cyclical, really, aren't they? It's um, mm. it, it's the, the problems and the answers and responses come from the data that's that's gone in. Um, I want to. So we know that lots of people are using it, but there is at the heart of this, and I think we've touched on it. There's this there's this kind of core dilemma about the reliability of the of the information. Um, so we're going to hear from the AI Liz again, uh, some interesting figures um, on reliability and accuracy from the consumer perspective. Although ChatGPT generates text and is not the actual content creator, most respondents use it for exactly that, as a source of information. 31% of ChatGPT users consider ChatGPT to be a reliable source, yet 73% of ChatGPT users indicate to be satisfied with the reliability of the answers provided. This suggests that, despite some of the users acknowledging the potential for inaccurate responses, they still consider ChatGPT to be a helpful tool. This is in sharp contrast with non-ChatGPT users, where only 6% believes ChatGPT is delivering reliable information. So I think that's really interesting because it's like people find it helpful and are using it to find information, even though a large proportion of them um, don't agree it's a reliable source. So there's something really interesting in that, I think, that maybe we're like slightly denying the accuracy of what's being there but, i mean the survey shows some really legitimate concerns for consumers and these have, have culminated in many jurisdictions in complaints and investigations which are targeting in the first instance chat gpt i think because it's been rolled out for the longest and there's one interesting example from consumer groups in belgium italy portugal and spain who filed a joint complaint with their national consumer protection authorities against chat gp for misleading commercial practices. Um, I'm just going to put up the link to that now. Um, so basically, the if, if a test search was what's the best vacuum cleaner recommended by Testashar or Ultra Consumo, which are all longstanding testing and consumer publishing groups. It basically presents a wrong result. It even offers some products that aren't on sale anymore. Or if you type the question again, it, it, it gives completely different answers each time. I mean, this perhaps isn't as dangerous as some disinformation and misinformation, but it shows the problem. There's a really reliable looking result, but it doesn't reflect the independently verified results. Um, so how do we, how can we solve this? How could we make this more reliable in the next iteration? Elias, what do you think? How, is, is this a question of transparency? Um, no, I think, um, I think first of all, Cali put it very well uh, before that, uh, you know, if you speak with enough authority, uh, you can probably convince people that you know, what you're saying is true. And this is largely what um, uh, these models are trained to do. Uh, again, not, uh, they're not, they're not um, an information, uh, a tool to present information. They're just modeled, you know, to, 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 to speak convincingly and, and to mimic um, in human behavior. Um, the to make results more reliable, um, 
I think in computer science they call uh, they call that hallucinations when when a generative model gives what appears to be coherent response, but it's not based on facts. Uh, so it is again, it's in a way programmed to do that. Um, and this can be reduced. Uh, there are there's certain ways, I think, in the training of the model um, to do that, like fine tuning it and other methods and guardrails um, you know, to deal with biases and, and other issues. However, uh, we have to point out this, that these are in essence predictive models. And as with any prediction, you can minimize to allow as much as possible the, uh, you know, the, the margin of error and the, you know, the factual uh, in the, the responses being incorrect. But um, at the same time, you can never completely eliminate that because, again, it's not searching in a database to present you information. It is trying to answer a, a question, a prompt as, as convincingly as possible. Okay, thanks. And, and Kelly, you mentioned something before about context and decontexting. Can you can you explain a bit more what you meant by that? Sure. So when these data sets are created through mass scraping across the internet, they're not pulling the full context of where they pulled that data from. Um, they're just making connections. So they're just seeing this fact pattern typically goes with this fact pattern. This piece of information typically goes with this piece of information. They're just drawing patterns from what they see. But when you divorce all of that from the context of where the information came from, what it was being used for, why it was put out there in the first place, you miss a lot of nuance that can actually lead it to forming incorrect patterns or linking information together that doesn't go together the way that it thinks it does. So for example, if I uh, ran a travel blog and I put up a blog post uh, describing how I had recently been to um, this country where I had a great experience, but I hadn't done my research beforehand and I really should have paid more attention to some of the cultural context there. Um, it may just scrape my experience that like I went to this country and I had a great time and ignore all of these other nuances in it. Uh, so it's basically stripping the content of that data and making connections that are the opposite of what I'm trying to convey in the context itself. Mm. Um, and that's a really minor example, but there are much more large scale examples where when you strip away context, you actually strip away the entire meaning of the information. And when you feed that into systems that then learn from it, they're learning the wrong patterns and the wrong connections. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I get, so with, yeah, we're missing out on that vital context, which makes information useful. Does anyone else want to come in on those points? Because if not, we had a, oh, sorry. No, if not, we did have a question that came in for you, Ludvico. Did you see that? Um, yeah, I won't read it all out, um, but I think I think it's a question about fair use. So if you could explain the concept of fair use very quickly. Um, well, yeah, first of all, fair use is a, is a, is a new uh, US concept. Mm. So, uh, uh, so I think that I would distinguish between the two things. I would focus on the first part of the question, which is about uh, the text and data mining exception, which has been introduced by the copyright directive and not to go into the fair use, which is not a European concept. Well, indeed, the, the copyright directive did introduce a, a, a tax and data mining exception, which can apply to artificial intelligence. But what we have been talking so far is mass scraping of data. And this wouldn't be covered by a, a copyright exception because that would be in itself an unlawful way of accessing to that data. So we, we wouldn't consider that this would even make the, uh, the, 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 the text and data mining exception be applied. Plus, then there is the issue of opting out so the right holders are given the possibility by the law to opt out from the application of this uh, TDM exception and uh, and uh, and most of them will certainly do so or mm -hmm. are already certainly doing so but again I think that this is a, a very residual uh, case because most of the uses that we are seeing of uh, of our content doesn't even pass the threshold of being a legal access to it. Okay. If it okay. makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And I'm going to stay stay with you, Ludovico, because we're going to move into this on this final part about regulation. So can regulation keep up with with the generative AI, which is coming out now? Um, so obviously, IFPI has a plan and a position on how you're going to make these new tools work for the music industry. How easy do you think that will be to implement? I think that I would I would come back to what was said before. Uh, we don't buy the usual argument that uh, what the regulation is about to ask is too complicated, it's too mm. complex, it's stifling innovation, this is making AI impossible to work and so forth. Because we have heard it so many times in the past and then uh, you're still, still using YouTube, you're still using Facebook, you're still using many services despite the fact that you had... Uh, uh, good regulation and quite uh, demanding regulation uh, uh, in the EU. So we do think that uh, if there is a problem, this should be addressed by the regulation and it should, should be addressed on an effective manner. Mm. Uh, and uh, at this stage, we think that really with the AI Act, which is now discussed in the European Union, there is a good opportunity by introducing effective and enforceable transparency record keeping obligations on on uh, on AI providers on AI systems. Okay, and they, they can be made. They can work as AI is is able as no other technology to deal with complexity. I think that they uh, would be able also to deal with the complex obligations. Yeah, I see your I see your point. So you don't think the AI can argue it's too complicated to be regulated. The very fact that it's able to deal with complexity means it should be able to deal with this. Um, I think lots of you watching will have heard about this, the, the attention that was on this big letter that was signed by lots of leading AI and tech developers, industry and academics, and they it, they called for a pause on generative AI development and, and cited the need for some sort of stronger regulations or ways of governing it. We also had MEPs signing a similar letter calling to, to work with the US on stronger governance and protections. And consumer groups in Europe think EU legislators should adopt strong rules on generative AI, following on from the Parliament's proposal for the AI Act. But there's lots to unpack here and not everybody agrees. So Elias, do you think we need new regulations for generative AI or does the thinking of the EU in particular, does it have enough in place already? Uh, well, the EU uh, at the moment, I mean, as I'm sure um, a lot of participants in the audience know, is, is currently working on an AI uh, regulation, the AI Act. Uh, of course, it's not yet finalized, but it is, it is in the works. Um, it's a regulation that we feel it, it responds to uh, you know, certain rather valid concerns about uh, the technology. Um, and it does adopt uh, what, is, what they call a risk-based approach. So basically whatever is deemed to be higher risk has you know, more uh, has stricter uh, obligations it, that it must meet before being rolled uh, on the market. So we think that's it, it's, a good, it's a good thing. It's, it's flexible enough. It's adaptable enough. And it, it's... It is also uh, is moving in a way that it can accommodate also future, uh, you know, technological developments. It's not uh, well, it's, it's what they call future proof. It's not, uh, you know, three years on the line something new comes and we need to regulate again. There is already baked within the proposal uh, a way to uh, make that adapt to new um, to new things. Now, we do have some concerns about that of, of the direction this is taking. Uh, there have been certain uh, there's a tendency to. To make it overlap with existing uh, with other legislation, which creates some some degree of uncertainty, it can also slow down some um, you know the rollout of some technologies in in Europe. We've already seen that um, recently. I'm thinking of you know uh, topics like disinformation, the, the Digital Services Act, uh, certain potential overlaps with the, the GDPR, uh, a little uh, some provisions on on copyright, for example. So that's uh, you know. That is an issue. I mean, if that can all be worked out, uh, there is a, it is actually, it is uh, an ongoing process. Uh, and yeah, we believe there's still room to make that uh, workable and in a balanced way that protects, adequately protects uh, consumers or users of AI 
while not uh, necessarily uh, you know making making it unworkable. I mean, it is it is a workable text at the moment. There's just, of course, the devil is in the details. There's a few things that need to be ironed out, but overall, uh, it, it can work. Okay, so you're happy with with where it's going? I think it was interesting because lots of, I think lots of legislation is is described as future proof, but then we saw with the AI Act, which was drawing to the end of its negotiations as ChatGPT came out, that there was a sort of panic about whether it was covering the generative stuff. Christian, if, if I may add, if I may add that, that indeed kind of, let's say, hijacked, for lack of a better word, the discussion a little bit, and there there have been some additions made to the text, specifically yeah. on generative uh, AI uh, because of that. So there is uh, still some you know, some work ongoing on this. Okay. But I wanted to ask Christian, because you've worked in sort of digital policy for so long, um, is it challenging to do this, to, to, to create genuinely future-proof regulation? Is that is that possible? Uh, yeah, of course, it's a challenge. I mean, um, <clears throat> there's, um, there's obviously uh, a balance to be struck between, um, uh, you know, putting putting guardrails in place so that um, uh, harms are presented, prevented whilst at the same time allowing, you know, businesses to innovate and and people to get better services, um, make their lives more convenient. Uh, I think, uh, I think the, my, my personal view um, uh, with relation to the GDPR, which I'm more familiar with is that um, the GDPR gets a lot of um, gets a lot of um, criticism um, for not having had perhaps the impact that people would have expected. But um, I think what it demonstrates is that if you take a if you pass a law which is extremely carefully designed, which the GDPR was, um, the most amendments ever in a law in the EU for four thousand amendments tabled enormous lobbying around it so you couldn't have, you couldn't you couldn't have conceived a more carefully deliberated and consensual law mm. um the, the the reality is that you know it's it's a horizontal um instrument which applies to everyone with one or two exceptions if it's private or household use of personal data you're out but otherwise uh, anyone who processes personal data is, is subject to the GDPR. And it doesn't really distinguish between, you know, um, uh, multinational companies, which may be more powerful than sovereign states in some cases, um, and, um, you know, a local, um, a local business in a, in a, in a village. So um, what that, what, what that comes down to then is the, the rule of law and the um, access to justice. So if you consider, uh, your your rights um, to have been infringed or obligations not to have been um, honoured, then uh, you should be able to bring bring a complaint and, and get justice. But um, access to justice is 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 is, is not um, is not equally enjoyed, and it ultimately comes down to um, you know the power market power of companies to. Um, to delay or influence or avoid um, enforcement, mm. um, and I think what you've seen—you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the letter, um, which was accompanied by, you know, lots of um, air miles around around Europe and and the West uh, by Sam Altman and others. I mean, we've we've heard this music before. It's it's basically an, an attempt to try to um, Saying you know we want to be regulated, but we want to be regu regulated in a way that we can we can dictate, which will benefit us. So um, and then uh, one of them said uh, almost in the same breath, but we don't like the AI Act so much, and if we can't comply with it, then we're out of the European market. So hmm. um, you know I I'm, I don't really have much time for these these grandiose statements. Um, <clears throat> okay. <That's> thanks. <laughs> thanks for your openness on that, Callie. I mean, picking up on that, 
we've got this really fast growing consumer tech. What would you like to see now from companies if they've put out, they've said publicly, we think this has potential to be incredibly risky and dangerous. What would you like to see them doing? Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, I'd like to see them complying with the laws that already exist that apply to the space. Um, there's a lot of talk from the generators of these systems that there's just nothing that applies and they aren't, they aren't sure. And they're in this wilderness and aren't, totally sure what they should be doing responsibly and legally. And, and first of all, that's just not true. If they genuinely think that, then they need to have another conversation with their attorneys. There absolutely are laws that apply in this space and that they should be following. Um, where there is uncertainty and where they do claim that they want more regulations, as, as Christian said, there have been several leaders of these companies that have publicly said that they want regulation and they want guidance in this space. If they want to prove that that's actually true, there are things they can do there. There is such a thing as industry standards and there is such a thing as industry um, certifications, frameworks, things along those lines where they can demonstrate that they have compliance with some basic safety. They can put these in place within the industry. They can do this and then have outside auditors that are checking that they're meeting benchmarks and have um, checks that they're they're actually adhering to standards, that sort of thing. Like you, you can put in place something that shows that you're actually making effort. It doesn't, it may not reach the same level as, you know, a legal solution or a law that specifically is called, you know, the generative AI law in the US, but there are absolutely things they can do. So I would urge any creators of these systems that are saying they want regulations to be the leaders in this space that they seem to want to be. They, so far, it seems like they want to say that they, they want to be responsible and they want to do good things for their users, but they also don't want to put any effort into demonstrating that in an actionable way. So I, I think this is an opportunity for them to prove that it's more than just talk. Okay. Okay. There's a challenge there from Kali. Um, Sinjin, what do you think? Uh, on the latter, um, and frankly, I think it's a fantastic PR exercise. Um, it's a little bit of kind of magician misdirection, kind of looking over here while they're mm -hmm. doing something else. I mean, the, and the kind of the, the petition is really interesting because if you think about kind of what happened with I mean, and the, the association um, with Oppenheimer and kind of saying that this is like a new nuclear weapon, which was actually said, I think, in front of Congress, it's kind of just scary tech and it has to be looked after by people who are experts who know it's actually carving out a space where firstly kind of they create kind of a regulatory environment where they're just trusted to kind of get on with it because they're the experts. And secondly, I think $10 trillion was spent on the European, sorry, on the US um, atomic um, program. I mean, it's, it's kind of almost like triggering politicians to spend lots of money in the area, bringing China into play as, as a kind of as a rival. So the US has to spend lots of money on it. Um, the reality is at the same time that a lot of those conversations are happening, I think it's a week after the, the meeting at Congress, Apple basically had a big announcement and they're putting large language models into iPhones to sit underneath the keyboard very prescriptively and, and deliberately to basically make uh, keyboards work more effectively. Um, and I think that's the way that the industry is actually going to go. We're going to see large language models used properly in, in really beneficial ways for consumers, and they're going to pr proliferate. So that the argument about, you know, of course, if we move into a world in the 30 years time with, generative, with general AI, which is kind of smarter than humans, is a great picture to, to, to tell, a great story to tell to kind of try and um, create some space for those companies to basically try and become the new Googles in the space. Where we really want to go is actually use, use the, the models we're, we're developing in very specific ways to help consumers. Things like recommendations, for example, basically, so I can have the perfect uh, recommendation of a, have a medical condition uh, and something which is properly tested with medical rigor. Um, should be the types of things that come through. And we already have lots of standards in place for these things. We, we, we already have um, huge numbers of regulations. It's about kind of all of those regulations kind of having the bar lifted for, for a world of AI effectively. Okay, interesting. And what do you think consumer groups can do to help build this more useful person-centered AI? Because we, you know, they're often cynical, they're looking for risks and they're looking to protect people. And it's an critical job but could we do more to help on the positive side do you think uh absolutely consumer i mean at the moment consumers don't really have a voice and we have the european union is fantastically kind of leading the way with um kind of 
prescriptive regulation which kind of looks at risks, which is, is fantastic and kind of follows on from GDPR. And it's if you look at the regulations coming through in the States, um, that's kind of it's driving the agenda. And I'm sure the US will follow through. Um, but there isn't really a voice for consumers. The consumer organizations have an incredibly important role to play um, as we look at all these different uses of, of AI technology as they roll out through society. Okay, thank you. Um, Callie, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to move into the final, like we're in the last five minutes. So I'm going to ask you all for a sort of closing, closing question. And if you can all stick to one minute as tightly as you can so that we can finish on time. Um, Callie, do you think the US and EU are going to take different paths on dealing with the risks of AI or can you see a lot of synergies? I think that there can be some synergy there, but I do think that based on the nature of how things are structured uh, legally in the US and the EU, they're going to have to take some different approaches and it'll be interesting to see what is more successful more quickly. Uh, in, the, in the US, there's already, uh, the FTC's already opened an investigation into um, open AI and looking at how, whether they're harming consumers. So the U.S. is taking the approach of using the authorities that are already in place and the laws that are already in place. Uh, the EU is doing great on timing. They have the AI Act that may be coming into force or may be passed um, very quickly. Um, so they may have some regulation that is more specific to this issue, but um, I, I think both are going to be looking at using the regulations they have in place and trying to be creative with how to apply them there in a consumer protective way. Thanks. Yeah, it feels like, you know, we're learning. We've been through a lot of digital disruption. I think we're relying on the tools that we have more than perhaps in the past where we'd be looking for something new. So I think that's interesting. Elias, are you confident the AI Act can deliver for consumers and industry? Um, yes, I believe it can. Uh, assuming, of course, we get it, uh, we get it right uh, in the end. So I, it's probably a reiteration of uh, the same point. We, we like the uh, the risk-based approach that uh, should be uh, kept in. We should just avoid just you know having rules that conflict with one another or that kind of uh, overlap with one another because then it's it's a bit you know becomes more much more challenging to to implement. And uh, I think if we stick to uh, uh, the principles behind the behind the proposal, uh, it will be possible to to ensure adequate consumer protection, while also allowing um, you know these technologies to be rolled out uh, as safely as possible. Mm. Okay, thank you. And Lodovico, um, what do you think your industry is going to look like, say, in five years' time, um, for for consumers and and also for artists? If I knew, I would have another job. <laughs> no, I think that we are. You know, our industry. Three months ago, it was all about TikTok. Uh, not three months, one year ago. So now it's artificial intelligence. Every every single month, there is something that is happening because, as you mentioned at the beginning, we are at the forefront of any digital disruption. And so um, it's going to be exciting in the next five years. And uh, and regarding AI, just let's do it right. And I'm sure that we are going to all try the to find a way to benefit from it. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to watch how how, how the, uh, the music industry takes on that challenge. Christian, I'm gonna leave you if you could very quickly close. You've talked a lot today about power and technology. Do you think we can create a more fair or ethical generative AI within the current system? Um, it's a big I, question. I, I really hope so. I really hope so. I think I think we, uh, the AI Act, is, as Kylie said, we, is is close to becoming EU law. Um, I think it is relevant for for generative generative AI um, in terms of identifying high risk um, uh, applications. Um, but you know, I, I think the the rules are more or less in place. It's a question of enforcing them, but also making sure that you know people, especially vulnerable people, are able to to realise the benefits of it rather than simply being um, kind of uh, being used as sort of labour and data in order to, to feed these systems. 
Thank you very much. So thank you to everybody, Elias, Kelly, Christian, Sinjin, Lodovico for all your time today. It's been really great. Start Talking is going to take a break for August, but we'll be back in September with another hot button consumer issue. You can find the surveys, you can find deta um, details of the complaint against Bing for misleading practices on Euro Consumers website. And you can also find um, links to uh, other episodes of Start Talking where we've covered a whole range of topics. But thank you very much, everyone, for your time today. It's been a fantastic hour, and I hope everyone watching and listening has enjoyed it too. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Power to the people. Someone used to sing. And while singing is not our expertise, empowering people, empowering you, is what we do. And in tune. How? We test, analyze, and compare products and services to ensure that they meet what you are looking for and comply with the law. We inform, advise, support, and represent consumers. And we do this in chorus, which is to say in several countries at the same time. Belgium, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Brazil. Then we dialogue, collaborate and sue companies if needed to make sure people's and your needs are in the best hands. And in the end, we improve the market and we all win. Maybe it does deserve a song. What do you think? Euro Consumers. Empower people, improve the market. <laughs>